0: Hello microbial nation, and welcome to the Crowcast, the show that brings you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. In this episode, we'll discuss Dot bomb, that is, the best of microbiology, where we scour the internet for the very best in microbial news.
1: Hey, I'm John.
0: And I'm Tess, and let's start the show.
1: First, we're going to start in the world of extremophiles and space probes.
0: And our first article we have is about cold-loving bacteria from Antarctica and the Arctic, occurrence, survival, and usefulness by S. Shivahi.
1: Now, as you might know, uh, extremophiles are microbes that can go, grow pretty much anywhere, including the Antarctica. There are specific ones that they call psychotrophilic. let say that 10 times fast. Or they grow at really low temperatures. Say like minus 20 to minus 30 degrees Celsius.
0: I think it's just psychrophilic.
1: I'm going to go with mine. Oh, it sounds sure. cool. Okay.
0: <laughs> Psychophilic microbes are unique because they can metabolize and produce a very low temperatures, which has applications in both biotech and food industries. Think of milk and cheese processing. Those need to be kept cold.
1: Traditionally, uh, microbiology, in terms of microbiome analysis, will only look at one gene that covers variety but doesn't really show function of those microbes. So. Metagenomic analysis provides a bigger picture because you're looking at all the genes. And so this method they're using is uh, a potential to help open the mysteries of these microbes.
0: So cool, psychophilic microbes. Next up, mapping extreme microbes in the Amazon's boiling river from one extreme temperature to the next. And this is by Adebay Rodriguez Benitez.
1: So I found this quite interesting because I had no idea that there was a boiling Amazon River. And it's in the, per- it's in the Peruvian rainforest uh, that boils at 212 Fahrenheit. And it's not very unique or imaginative, but it's called the Peruvian, Peruvian Boiling River.
0: Despite these conditions, microbes like bacteria, lichen, and cyanobacteria thrive there and grow making mats similar to moss and a river, which locals use for medical purposes.
1: And so the team studying this uh, hopes to see if they can find any compounds that these microbes produce that have medical benefits, uh, which is uh, something that uh, more and more scientists are looking at the Amazon in general. And we kind of need more and more as we see things as antibiotic resistance coming into play.
0: Now we're going to leave the Amazon and temperatures and look at extremophiles a little bit closer to home, and in fact, in your home. So this is an article called, entitled, Extremophiles May Be Living in Your Home, by Jessica Lee Hester.
1: So scientists around the country uh, took samples of water from their homes and They were surprised to find that organisms um, were found even in the waters of their heaters.
0: And while we think of water heaters, we can go back to heat-loving or thermophile or thermophilic microbes. One genus is Thermus, which has been found in the home environments, from hydrothermal vents to industrial composting systems and boreholes of gold mines.
1: And they're not really sure how these microbes got into the house, but their leading theory is that these microbes traveled through the pipeline.
0: And that is the end of our mini-microbe news on extremophiles. Moving on to the next section, which will, we will talk about pathogen profiles and medical microbiology.
1: The first article we're looking at is Fungus Among Us, which was a podcast delivered by the Radiolab NYC Studios.
0: And so this story takes us back to 2014, to a Pakistan hospital, where they were seeing strange cases of people getting sick with what turned out to be a fungal infection by the yeast candida, oris, which was getting into the bloodstream. In, In just six months, this hospital found 19 cases and eight deaths.
1: Oddly enough, this yeast first appeared in 2009, Um, amongst all things as an uh, ear infection but epidemiological work uh, was showing that cases were popping up all over the world including South Korea, India, and South Africa and these outbreaks were not shown to have a single origin which means that this organism was developing the ability to infect people at different places of the world at the same time independently of these areas. So what does that mean now?
0: So The researchers speculated or theorized that this may be due to global warming. As the temperature rises, it selects for fungal cells and mutants that can adapt to slowly increasing temperatures, as many species cannot thrive at the temperatures of our bodies. Eventually, they will adapt to temperatures that allows them to infect and grow in people. And this may be true not only for human pathogens, but they are starting to see this arise also in plant pathogens and in um, certain insects that are changing their environment due to global warming.
1: The next article is How to Know When You Can Trust a COVID-19 Vaccine by Maggie Coorth. And I apologize ahead of time if I'm butchering anybody's name.
0: And yeah, guys, we're trying the best we can here. So um, I know COVID vaccine, everyone hears about it all the time and it's on our minds pretty much constantly as COVID-19 has shifted our lives from an old normal to what we now must call the new normal. But as we get closer to vaccines and as we continue to approach the um, American election, we are seeing COVID-19 become more and more of a political agenda. So there are many people, including Americans and researchers across the world, who are asking themselves, should they even get it, get a vaccine if it comes out?
1: And so advice from experts were given on what we should do regarding the COVID-19 vaccine development. And many say not to take the advice from politicians or pharmaceutical companies. Because
0: remember, they have a stake in the game.
1: But to trust independent scientists and medical professionals Remember, these people generally don't have uh, money from special interest groups, so their uh,
0: only interest is your health.
1: And more unbiased.
0: So um, it is good to, to know how trials, vaccine trials works. They do take a lot of time, um, and saying that we will have a vaccine before the election s- season, which I guess we are already in, is totally preposterous. Uh, And the reason for this is that currently, even the leading vaccine trials are still enrolling participants. Um, And so you need at least a month, most of the time too, before you can collect all the data. And it's not just unlikely, it's impossible to have this vaccine out before 2021 when you think of those timescales. And this was a quote by Eric Topple, um, a professor and executive vice president at Scripps Research Institute.
1: Our next article is researchers are developing faster acting, longer lasting disinfectants. And this is written by Emily Henderson.
0: Most disinfectants take several minutes to kill bacteria. Not practical during a pandemic for high use items being touched all the time, like door handles and countertops, particularly when you're thinking about restaurants and other public seating areas.
1: And so the University of Central Florida is developing a new rapid acting, long lasting disinfectant spray that instantly kills viruses without using harsh chemicals. And I can say working with harsh disinfectants, that is something that is appealing. I worked with chemicals that would rust pretty much anything.
0: This definitely has a lot of real world applications. Um, So this is pretty exciting um, to come up with these longer lasting disinfections that act faster. So the disinfectant spray could be sent to the US Environmental Protection Agency for approval at the end of one year project, after which it could appear on the market. So keep your eyes out.
1: And now we move into the world of food and agricultural microbiology,
0: where our first article we will discuss the symbiosis of endophytic fungi shaped the metabolic, metabolic profiles in grape leaves of different varieties. And this is from Xiao Xia Pan.
1: So endophytes are microbes that live inside plant tissues and they don't cause harm. There is a great interest in these microbes as they are thought to be communicating and interacting with the plant and perhaps eat, uh, in beneficial ways.
0: Kind of like your gut microbiome where you have many microbes living inside your gut, helping you. So Pan and colleagues investigated this interaction between the fungi and the grape leaf and used a method called high pressure liquid chromo, chromatography, which we call in the biz, HPLC, to understand the metabolism and influence of the microbe on the plant leaf.
1: And so this team looked at 14 different fungal endophytes uh, that were isolated from this grapevine and they found that each fungus produced a different profile impacting the plant differently. Some fungi produced more benefits to the plant than others.
0: Moving on to article number two, our second favorite article in the world of food and agriculture for this month, the taxonomic assignment of arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi in the 18S metagenomic data site, a case study with salt cedar by Frank Stefani.
1: So AMF or arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi are incredibly important symbiotic fungi to land plants. They extend the reach of the roots and help uh, in uptaking vital nutrients like phosphorus. But when it comes to identifying these microbes, it's very challenging.
0: Very challenging. I know firsthand. It's a nightmare. So when we're talking about fungal microbiomes, we call this the mycobiome because they are from mycology or the study of fungus, which sounds very similar to microbiome, but it is different with a Y, not an I. So mycobiomes are often done through looking at one gene, as we were talking before, and they are shared amongst all fungus and then compared in a database. So basically, this one gene is very similar across all the fungus but has just enough differences where you can identify the fungi at least to a point. And so this gene that is usually used in microbiome studies actually does a really poor job at identifying our arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, or AMF. And the databases do not include many sequences belonging to this group. It's actually quite a very diverse group, as these kinds of fungus have been associated with basically every kind of land plant species that we have. And the databases currently only have about two to five different genre in them that belong to this group
1: and so the team uh with frank uh, stefani decided to look at or decided to take a different approach in identifying these microbes they took known sequences and created a phylogenetic tree with their unknown sequences and identified the unknown microbes based on their relatedness to the known microbes Could you elaborate a little bit more on that?
0: So basically what they did is they took some microbes, which they knew belonged to AMF, and they tried to align the sequences. And the ones that were closely aligned together, you can say that they are similar. They can say that they're the same genus or sometimes the same species if they are entirely the same. Um, And the further... Their gene, the um, genetic code is from each other, the least likely they are to be attributed to that particular genus. So the closer they are, um, the more probable they belong to the same genus. And the more dissimilar the sequences are, the least likely they are to be part of the same genus.
1: I'm glad you're a bioinformatician so we can understand these things.
0: (laughs) I'm not sure I explained it super well, but... Moving on to our Penn State study, where researchers studied a novel coronavirus potential to infect livestock.
1: So a USDA grant was approved recently for Penn State to research the potential for COVID-19 to spread amongst farm animals.
0: And throughout history, we have seen diseases spread between humans and animals. Think of the H1N1 or the swine flu or even Zika.
1: And so this lab will use both animal and cell cultures to study the virus's ability to adapt to animals, as well as uh, developing tests to detect antibodies uh, to SARS-CoV-2 in livestock. This could be particularly detrimental to our uh, agricultural business.
0: Moving on to our next category of environmental and marine microbiology.
1: So our first article is scientists awaken a deep sea bacteria after hundred million years. A
0: hundred million years.
1: Dinosaur Times by Amanda Haidt.
0: And so these microbes were extracted from deep sea sediments that settled during the age of the dinosaurs.
1: And so samples of clay were collected off of the coast of Australia. And these this clay was deposited between 13 million and 102 million years ago.
0: And so over time, they um, had these microbes, they began to revive and multiply. And when we say over time, we're talking 68 days. So... That's a long time to wait to see if something happens um, as, a, as a microbiologist when often your microbes will be alive and thriving and dead in four or five days.
1: Yeah, most labs have just tossed all those samples out the window by then.
0: Yeah, so good on them for keeping them for over two months. And they actually found that these bacteria represent 10 major groups of bacteria. Wowza! That's crazy. Crazy cool.
1: Hopefully, they're not uh, deadly to us.
0: Oh, I mean, most bacteria aren't, so. Mm,
1: yeah. All right, our next article is After an Asteroid Wiped Out the Dinosaurs. Talking about dinosaurs again. We ocean. like
0: dinosaurs.
1: They're pretty damn cool.
0: And microbes. And well, space.
1: The ocean microbes helped to life rebound from Katherine Connery. I'm
0: going to say
1: cornei. We'll go with corn eye
0: yeah catherine if you're listening write us in let us know anyway she writes about the um her opening line which i just loved was never underestimate spawn scum which i just love this line because pond scum is one of those things that we never pay attention to or if we do we're saying oh, gross. But actually, pond scum can have so much information in it about our environment, about our society, and of course, about microbiology. And so this story is about the microbes that revived life after a crater destroyed the dinosaurs. And so we're not really looking so much at pond scum, but at ocean microbes.
1: And when researchers dug into the Chicksulub crater, off the Gulf of Mexico, they found a ton of micrite, which is a calcium carbonate mineral that is produced by bacteria and used by corals and plankton to make skeletons.
0: So after the asteroid crashed into the Earth's surface and destroyed both land and sea, life still found a way to survive. And the reason why life found a way to survive um, was because of microbiology so with little other competitors um algae and photosynthetic bacteria were able to rule the world at least for a time until we came around destroyed all its habitat and now mm. we're trying to use it to make bras and stuff but that's another story
1: and now for something completely different and now
0: for something completely different
1: researchers identify the mi- the missing link between the production of nitric oxide by emily henderson
0: Okay, so we're going to get a little bit chemistry here, but hopefully y'all still follow along. And if not, we only talk about each article for about 30 seconds, so just hit that 30-second fast-forward button if you're not a chemistry person. But I encourage you to listen because the more you know, the more you grow. So we're talking ammonia can be toxic to microbes like methanotrophs. And so, to combat this, they're able to metabolize it to hydroxylamine, which results in inhibiting metabolic processes in the cell.
1: And so, so how some microbes overcome this, uh, they produce uh, an enzyme called hydroxylamine uh, converting enzyme, which has been found to convert. I'm sorry, people, hydroxylamine into nitric oxide.
0: And so while it's still unknown how nitric oxide is converted into nitrate by methanogens, we are a little bit closer to completing this puzzle.
1: And this brings us to biotech and microbial products.
0: Our final segment in the bomb. So the first article we will talk about is microbial fusion and exchange from two different species observed by Camille Cherubin and Joy Smoker.
1: So a lab at the University of Delaware uh, had shown that two species of bacteria can fuse together, forming a hybrid uh, cell that shares both proteins and RNA together. And I, I wouldn't say ironically, but interestingly, can replicate together while fused.
0: Hybrid bacteria.
1: Yeah, that's something I would never have thought.
0: So this was observed in two species of Clostridia which have been shown to be beneficial to each other.
1: One of my favorite pictures in the paper is it shows they labeled proteins either as green or red and you can see the mixing between these two hybrid cells. And so this opens new possibilities such as like how antibiotic resistance is shared amongst other uh, bacteria and also, is it possible to cultivate uh, fastidious bacteria? Because we generally have a hard time growing all known species. So maybe they require this hybridization to be able to survive in the environment and grow.
0: Extreme symbiosis. Very extreme. Interesting. Bioremediation of Diesel Oil in Marine Environments by Reha Matthew and Mary Cuddy Abraham.
1: So, bioremediation is the process of employing microbes to eat unwanted materials, uh, such as oil spills, which have a huge impact on climate change.
0: So, bioremediation can happen in two ways. You have bioaugmentation, which introduces new bacteria to an environment. And then you have biostimulation, which introduces new nutrients to stimulate native microbes to degrade a substance. So you can kind of think of this as the difference between probiotics, which is adding bacteria, versus prebiotics, which is adding nutrients.
1: And so these researchers used beeswax as a biostimulant and simulated an oil spill and showed that the addition of this beeswax removed 80% of of the oil in 15 days, while the control only removed 59%. Um, This is incredible because if you think about it, you want to encourage biostimulation because these microbes already live in the environment and you don't want to introduce something new into the environment and possibly detrimental.
0: Yeah, so we have yet another reason to save the bees for their beeswax for oil spills. Going to our final article of the day, Going Waterless, A Major Step Towards Lab Sustainability by Kumar Jitendra.
1: I know this is a little bit of a stretch, but I liked it because it in, it, it implements uh, green lab practices, which is something that should be done more and more. That being said, um, this focused on condensers. This is an instrument that you see in many labs, like chemical labs, uh, where um, heated liquids are cooled to prevent any evaporation. or. Um, they also cool like water vapor back into liquid.
0: And so a UK group that works on sustainability has developed a waterless condenser that just uses air to cool the contents over a larger area.
1: So typically the condensers uh, that are used um, toss the water when it's done. Leading uh, With their calculations led to a waste of over a million liters of water a year for a typical Re- reflux reduction. Uh, this saves water and money for all the labs out there, including those for microbial research.
0: Well, Microbi-gal nation, there you have it. From biotech to marine microbiology to dinosaurs to agriculture to COVID in your own body and to the extremophiles living in your home to the Antarctica, that is our segment of the Bomb.
1: Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and share with a friend.
0: And if you'd like to contact us or to see any of our resources or references for this podcast, you can check them out at Microbigales.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S.com. So remember to feed your mind, feed your guts. Make your microbes. Love you lots.
1: Bye, everybody.
0: Have a great day.